welcome to the Grumpy Economist podcast. Um, this week, I'm really glad to have a guest, Ed Glazer. Um, last time we talked, I, I was spouting off about cities, and it occurred to uh, those of us who work here, why don't we talk to someone who knows something about cities? Um, Ed is a professor at Harvard. I, I won't give all his many list of accomplishments. Uh, I got to know Ed when he was the star graduate student at the University of Chicago, uh, not just one of the smartest and best read, but the best dressed for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and Ed has taught me just about everything I know about uh, cities. He does lots of other things, but he has had great insights about cities and it has revitalized really the economics of cities uh, single-handed. So uh, let's talk to Ed. Welcome, Ed. Thank you for joining us on the Grumpy Economist podcast. Oh, thank you, John. Thank you for your your kind words, which were anything but grumpy. And needless to say, I've learned an enormous amount from you as well uh, since I was 21 and, and uh, first sat at your feet trying to learn time series. But Well, that was it was a great experience because I didn't know anything either. And uh, <laughs> uh, the way I learned was having to stand up in front of students like yourself and be faintly coherent. Uh, so it was a great experience for all of us. But we are much older and wiser now, aren't we? <laughs> uh, let's hope so, a little bit. <laughs> well, uh, what, what brought me to calling you, other than I always enjoy talking to you, uh, is the, the question we started talking about, um, what is the future of cities? Uh, let's frame it. Let's start with um, wh what the common zeitgeist is. Oh, Zoom means we'll never have to work together again. Uh, everybody will just go to their country houses and, and fax it in. From you, I have learned a lot about uh, agglomerations and um, increasing returns, the incredible robustness of cities for the last 10,000 years, um, how they have come back from the bombing of World War II and the sack of Troy like 17 times, which led me to be a little bit skeptical, but maybe no, maybe Zoom uh, really does change anything. So let's, what, what do you think? Uh, what happens after COVID? So uh, I tend to think about, I mean, the world as being in sort of two branches, one of which is pandemic becomes permanent. This thing lasts for several years and we get a new pandemic in the next decade. That's a pretty dark world. <laughs> and that's a world in which, at least in the wealthy world, we probably will end up rethinking our urban space to a dramatic degree. Now, that's a world also that is catastrophic for the 32 million Americans who work in face-to-face -face service sector jobs in leisure, hospitality, and retail trade, because those jobs, which have proven to be a safe haven against automation, sort of vanish in a heartbeat if seeing someone serve your latte with a smile suddenly becomes a source of terror rather than a source of, of pleasure. Um, but even in the good phase of the world, the good phase of the world being but that, if you I know... We've had pandemics before, and certainly over the long sweep of history, even after the plague, even after pandemics that came many years, we, the pandemic seemed to go away and then people forget with remarkable quickness about uh, what happened. That is certainly true. So that, that's my that's my sort of good picture of the world is that we get rid of this thing in a couple of years. And um, the, the one well, that is... In, in the world of repeated uh, pandemics, this may be the first of many. Uh, it may be. I, I, I think that's certainly right. Uh, there's a question as to whether or not we ever get back to... I mean, that, that sort of dark picture... Um, 
I don't know. I mean, that's that's a that's a much harder thing to think about. Um, it is true that the poor cities of the world will continue. I mean, the death rates mm. from COVID are nothing like the death rates from cholera in 1830 in Paris and 1831 in New York. And poor people kept on coming to these these cities, and they will keep on coming to Lagos and Addis Ababa and uh, Mumbai, despite uh, whatever goes on. So, in that sense, I think this this continues. But I do think the rich world is likely to reorient itself and. Even in the relatively good disease case, it's still going to be a tough decade for cities, right? Not just because of Zoom, but also because of the pre-existing headwinds, which were quite strong in many ways against our older cities, uh, because of the you know the problems facing public transportation. Yes, yes, we need to get there and so forth. Um, and and I will just say historically, right? There's a lot of you know resilience in the past 650 years. So the past 650 years have been relatively resilient ones for cities. There is this sort of dark memory of the plague of Justinian, where if if we sort of remember, we have this sort of vision of Justinian sending out Belisarius to to Italy and and getting ready to restore the Pax Romana in the Mediterranean world, and that's just cut down by the first appearance of Yersinia pestis in the European scene, which sort of levels Constantinople, levels. Uh, Justinian's hopes, you know, and plunges Europe into centuries of uh, non-urban rural warfare and and poverty. I think we probably want to think that what went wrong is the political fallout of the plague, that it was not actually the plague itself, but the sort of political chaos that came after it. But And the, the GDP population, just the ability to maintain uh, military and the, the falling apart of the institutions of society. I, I, when I worry in my grumpy moments, uh, I worry that uh, the institutions of our society are incapable of taking care of a real plague. As you mentioned, this was the fire drill. What happens when 20 percent? But I, the, the question I wanted to start with really was, you've taught me a lot about the, the, the mystical agglomerations, the need for face-to-face interaction, the something magic about the productivity of cities. Um, maybe not the same cities. We might all move to Denver and Austin. Uh, but uh, a- apart from the reallocation question of uh, how do we eat and, and what happens to service people, um, what do you think of the story that that's just less important and we can all work online? Or is the force, is that mystical force, which I it sounds right, but I never really understood. Is that mystical force <laughs> to bring us all back to uh, to cities to be productive? Is that still going to be there? So I think the thing that is unclear. So the things that we would have we would have said is the things that seem clear to me are the things that are sort of simple functional interactions you can do on Zoom, and there's no question about that. You and me. <laughs> we're doing it right now, and, and uh, absolutely, and and old friends can certainly you know have perfectly pleasant conversations. Um, there are two questions. One of which is, will we continue to have the sort of unplanned random interactions, which we think are important? And secondly, there's an emotional side to connection that is different, particularly when strangers or people who don't know each other as well are interacting on Zoom. I mean, think about the experience of lecturing over Zoom. Right. It is one thing to coordinate information to an advisee over Zoom or to, to react to them where you know them and you have some some sense of, of their motivation. Trying to get a bunch of 19 year olds excited about mathematical economics over a Zoom lecture is just an incredibly hard thing to do. And if you think about, you know, translate that to sort of you're starting your tech startup and you're trying to get, you know, 18 hour a day effort and excitement out of your employees. Can you possibly do that with purely electronic interactions? And also, of course, the close cousin of that is, 
you know, we live, you know, we like living our lives live, right? We enjoy human interactions. And we have certainly seen in the explosion of desire for face-to-face interaction, right, just how much human beings actually want to be near each other. And that's also true in the workplace. I mean, there's a lot of tech companies that have organized themselves around being places that young people actually want to be. The foosball machine. The foosball machine. <laughs> well, that that has been uh, my my prejudice on this: that we can keep the team going for a while, but forming a new team, uh, all of those "I do you a favor, you do me a favor" things that are that are important. That the fact that we have firms and not markets is going to be hard to replace, and also. Uh, you know, many tech companies had tried work from home. Yahoo did it famously, and it failed because, um, you know, in the history of economics, you can work from home when you're doing piece rate, but it's very hard to be a salaried worker from home because of the monitoring problem. So uh, both in, in this, this sort of mythical people need to bump into each other sense and in just the traditional how do you monitor uh, people working at home, it seemed to me that this wouldn't last, but um, you're the expert on that. I'll try and tell you three pieces of evidence that I that I have on this. One of which, which I find quite compelling, is I have one student who's been working with um, job openings on burning glass. And one of the things that you would have thought, if we've all learned to do everything on Zoom, is you would see a rapid comeback of openings for remotable jobs, right? That you would see lots of people hiring, expecting there to be there, there to be remote jobs. That has not happened at all. They've kept their jobs, but there's been a huge drop in uh, the, the job openings and in the, in the, essentially the wanted ads for these jobs that can be done remotely. So if you think of that as sort of a, a forward-looking indicator, you don't have a sense that the businesses are trying to restock their remote, their remote working jobs. Second piece of evidence, which is somewhat interesting, is that I have another student, Emma Harrington, who's on the market, who works with one large uh, American retailer, who's done something similar to your colleague Nick Bloom in that um, she's looked at what's happened to productivity when you shifted to remote. Uh, and that she found, you know, the same things that Nick did, which was for this fairly, you know, transactional thing, very little difference, if anything, even a slight increase in productivity. But it's also true that when the company before COVID tried to hire people for remote jobs, they got crappy workers. And there's sort of a selection thing that like the people who want to do remote jobs are just not people who are highly excited about about this. No, one thing I learned from you is that the key to productivity, though, is not the view of a city is not there's a factory, it's productive or not, there's people who live there. What's key about Silicon Valley, what's key about San Francisco, what's key about New York is the the multi, the same reason all the Thai, re, there's five Thai restaurants in a row uh, on 55th Street in Chicago, uh, that um, there's this group of talent that bumps from Facebook to Uber to whatever, and and there's something about you have to be in one of these super exciting areas to get things going. Now, it's not clear that lasts past the growth stage into the regulated monopoly stage, which is where we are now. <laughs> Uh, but but that seems like the thing that this informal interaction that this agglomeration of size that a city is that 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 will be hard to replace with us being online i think that that's totally true uh it's just harder to and you know we have tons of of data about people being face to face and you know forming innovations and and patents the patent trail evidence and so forth showing that people who are physically proximate are more likely to cite each other and all of that supports that Uh, it's it seems to me that you're right and it's unlikely that we're gonna be able to reproduce that in a virtual world but 
I know that there is something sort of emotionally different about these interactions. And in some sense, I, I focused more on that because I, I, we see that in the here and now, whereas the innovation uh, claim is more of a, of a thing which seems right, but we have less hard data on it. Right. Well, let's, let's move on to the second thing that you were talking about, the spiral of birth and death of cities. Uh, are we, is San Francisco the new Detroit? Uh, certainly. So I see the young tech people moving out in droves. The restaurants are all closed down. The riots have, uh, whatever businesses didn't go bankrupt because of COVID have now been cleared out because of riots. Uh, there's a natural spiral there. The tax base, you've, Certainly the numbers I'm seeing on sales tax revenues, the tax base disappears. The rent-seeking class is still there. The tax rates go up. The astounding regulations that they had put uh, to suck this productivity out of the private sector is still in place. Uh, can San Francisco come back? Or is that over and this new agglomeration of um, talent and people talking informally is will that spring up in austin denver uh is it slash and burn and we're on to green fields well i think unquestionably you're right that like the the obvious winners from this are going to be high amenities middle density places where foot footloose tech employees think it's really cool to be and it's cheaper than san francisco and it doesn't have all of the other pain so there's no question that like this is a great thing for boulder for vale for you know these sort of these sort of mid-range places um now san francisco or new york have the same sort of issues they have political issues going into this they have you know various affordability issues which are largely self-inflicted um they have huge conflicts between rich and poor um and they managed to put themselves in a mindset prior to COVID of thinking that their success was foreordained so they could, you know, just milk whatever wealth was there without any worry that that, mel that, that wealth would leave. Now, keeping that view, that, that view was never correct, right? People always <laughs> are able to move. But in a world post-COVID where we've suddenly gotten used to doing things at home, uh, that view is particularly dangerous. And uh, you and I were both old enough to remember New York in the 1970s. 70s to remember a city that very much felt like it was an, on the edge of a precipice. And it took several election cycles for it to sink in that if the city does not get properly managed, it, it you know, has no success ordained to it. It will not run. Um, and the hope is, I believe that San Francisco will come back because I believe that in a couple of election cycles, the city will realize that it actually needs to run itself properly, which does not mean that you ignore the needs of, of poorer San Franciscans, no. but it does mean that you have to be relatively sensible about this and try to, you know, do things that are close to, as we would say, the Pareto frontier and, you know, not just waste things in, in useless regulation. But is it is it possible that um, that this unrecoverable that even San Francisco you know it's San Francisco all the restaurants closed the young people all moved to Denver the tech companies moved to Denver and Austin you put in um, uh, you know sensible policies but uh, you need the restaurants to come back before the young people come back and you need the young people to come back before the tech companies come back and you need to fix the zoning laws and it just you know, I notice how many, while we are trying in Silicon Valley to kill Stanford and the tech boom, throughout the country, <laughs> no, we are, and, and we can get into some of the regulations. Uh, everybody wants to be the new Silicon Valley, but, you know, Des Moines has never been able to be the new Silicon Valley. Uh, it does require that coordination mechanism, the I do it if you do it mechanism, that would seem once it's gone, it's gone forever. Now, New York is a good example. New York came back. 
Uh, now, maybe it kept just enough of that magic of the financial industry that uh, was able to come back. Um, but it is, is it possible that this has just gone and we're the new Detroit? Detroit never came back. Of course, they never fixed their policy problems. Right. And it was a it was a much more fragile world because it had sort of one dominant industry at a few dominant firms. It was sort of put itself in a very vulnerable position. Uh, it also had climate which was a, uh, you know, a, a profound negative. Um, you know, I, I tend to think of these things as being, you know, the prices fall before the houses go empty. And there's a lot of room in terms of the price space for an $8 million apartment to go down <laughs> before it's literally left vacant. <laughs> so do I think that San Francisco gets cheaper? Yes. Do I think it gets younger? Yes. Do I think it gets grittier? For sure. Uh, but uh, while, you know, moving immediately from $8 million apartments to, you know, empty to vast empty buildings, that's an enormous jump in, in very little time. I think the same thing is true in Greenwich Village. In so I, I would certainly expect a price adjustment before I'd expect to see a large scale quantity adjustment. Although, as you say, it is a coordination issue, but I still think that there's enough sort of anchoring this that you wouldn't see a complete abandonment. You'd see a, a you know, a, a major jump down in price. Uh, right. And um, one thing you taught me is to look at Q uh, for our listeners. That's the ratio of price to replacement cost. Uh, and that lots of places stay stay along for a long time because uh, houses that's price is less than replacement costs are a cheap place to live if you have a check that's coming from somewhere else. Uh, that's not particularly useful, though, as a place on which to build the new great tech, uh, the new great uh, um, tech hub. Right. Uh, it's, it's a it's a way to die slowly. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But but the Silicon Valley area has San Francisco and Berkeley, which are both relatively fixed assets and worth a lot. They have a lot of tech money that seems at least fixed in the region, if not fixed in any particular jurisdiction. Uh, although you'd have a stronger view on that than I would. Well, I, um, I have newspaper accounts and you may have data, uh, but both wealthy individuals and corporations are moving out as fast as humanly possible. Uh, what I seem to notice here, so of course the individual tax uh, situation is moving people to want to leave California fast. Um, but um, I, I interpret here through the lens, the Ed Glazer <laughs> view of things, uh, it costs millions of dollars to have a home here. So what gets done here is what absolutely must be done, which seems to be that network of uh, the venture right. capitalist here. The, the I can easily get someone who can JavaScript program something else. We can do the venture. But once you're in production, HR moves over the hills into totally. uh, Tracy. And then as soon as you can, you move it to Reno. <clears throat> Right. And then once it's a stable operation that doesn't need this floating uh, pool of talent, it, it moves out fast. And now, you know, even the development stuff can get moved out to Denver and Austin, uh, which I think bodes ill. Now, we always will have climate. It'll, uh, you know, some yep. tax not ridiculous. It, it'll be a retirement village. But uh, as a center for entrepreneurial hub, that, that, that seems dangerous to me. Right. And it is certainly true that like there's, if there's one population for which the Zoom world is clearly going to be a bonus, it's going to be Bangalore. I mean, the, the, the software and tech talent in the developing world has got to benefit from this in a, in a meaningful way. It, not, it won't necessarily solve the problem of the sort of poorer residents of that world or the less, high, the less teched up. But, but you know, I, I just can't imagine a world in which there'll be more competition in some sense for American tech talent globally as a result of this. Well, I guess maybe, maybe I'm being, <clears throat> by thinking about Austin and Denver, maybe 
I should be thinking about Bangalore and Shanghai and lots of other places that uh, the Zoom world em- empowers. And uh, they, they have economies of scale we don't have, actually, in terms of numbers of people and talent sitting around in the same place. They do. They do. And China has proven its ability to deal with uh, to deal with the disease quite well. Um, but at least it seems to have. So, uh, let me turn uh, a little bit to um, urban pathologies. Uh, we've talked about uh, some. Um, and and I, I noticed you brought up uh, the difficulties of the urban poor. Uh, crime seems to be a problem that's coming back and uh, how we're going to differing views of uh, how we're going to deal with that. Um, so let, let me tee that issue up. Um, which of the horrible policies <laughs> of city governments would you like to, uh, to for us to think about most uh, between zoning, uh, rent control, uh, legacy costs, high taxes, uh, ruinous regulation, uh, and so forth? Oh, there's so much there. But, uh, but I think actually <laughs> the first thing that we should highlight actually is none of those things. The first thing we should highlight that is, is the schooling issue. And, oh, you know, you. I, am, I am very big on, you know, how cities are, are you know, not just, not just places that increase the level of earnings, but they appear to increase the growth rate of earnings for adults. They appear to be, you know, forges of human capital for grownups. Um, Raj Chetty's data on upward mobility suggests that they are anything but forges of human capital for younger adults, that along almost every measure of urbanity, upward mobility looks terrible uh, in, in America's cities. Now, this is a generation that's born between 78 and 82, but if you look at proximity to the central business district, you look at higher density metropolitan areas, you look at higher density tracts within those metropolitan areas, you look at the spatial discontinuity at the central city school district border, every one of those look terrible for for kids growing up in cities. Um, and that is clearly sort of the, you know, the, the largest failure of, of urban America, of the public sector in urban America. Um, it, it is amazing that we have been having these discussions about, you know, school reform for so many decades. I mean, uh, it's never been a direct focus of my own research, but I've certainly, I was on the advisory panel for the Gates Foundation's domestic branch, which did this thing for a decade. And, uh, you know, lots of good people, many of your your colleagues have been engaged in, in this for many decades, and we've made remarkably little progress on this. Um, and of course, it, what's the crazy thing is, it's not like any Englishman ever thought they had to leave London to get better schools. No Frenchman ever thought they had to leave Paris to get better high schools for their kids. But in America, we have managed to concoct a system which seems uniquely bad at, you know, providing an urban education for our children. Yeah, and there's, I guess, one of the um, trade-offs of cities, perhaps one way of putting it is that <clears throat> the agglomeration of cities allows political machines to extract rents more efficiently than it does in suburban or rural areas. I mean, I, I put the blame fairly squarely on uh, teachers' unions and the American system of public employee unions. Um, we clearly, the progress that we've seen is is the school choice movement, which has shown remarkable ability to teach kids from even disastrous socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, uh, so we we are particularly bad at that, and I I would point to it as well. I, I agree. Um, if you want to worry about inequality and opportunity, the disastrous schooling that we offer low income and minority kids, especially in urban areas, uh, oh, that's problem number one. And key to revitalization. Um, you know, I grew up in Chicago in the 1970s in the wake of the 1968 riots, uh, which made me very discouraged to see. 
a lot of the stuff, you know, the police left crime infested. I went to a largely black public high school. Uh, I've seen um, kind of the despair uh, that kids in these horrible educational systems have. And, and it's sad to see that continue and and be so yeah. hard to fix. Though, um, you know, the African-American community really wants school choice. And it's a very interesting political nut. Any deep insight on how, right, London, Paris, it's not so bad. Now, those are state-run, those are state-run yeah. schools as opposed to city-run schools. Perhaps that's the key. But they have public employee unions just like we do. They do, uh, although I think probably you'd end up finding things that look a little bit more like like competition, at least in the English sector. And of course, there are places where you don't think you'd see a lot of competition, like the Netherlands and Sweden, which actually do have a fair amount of competition uh, going in. Um, the, the 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 political thing that you know, there, there's a mantra that sort of merged in this in this school reform thing that ultimately after years of fighting the teachers unions a fair number of people came to view the view that there was no way of making reform without getting the teachers unions on board i don't know if that's true or not and again i'm not i'm not i'm not trying to to dispute your claim on this but somehow or other we need to figure out a way forward that probably involves having the teachers sign on to it not not you know, and and as we know, as people who are teachers ourselves, right, the ability you could perhaps tell a cop how to do his business. You perhaps have enough monitoring, and you have this quasi-military police organization. It's awfully hard to control what a teacher does in the classroom, right? Well, most teachers is, themselves are extremely frustrated by the current system. Yeah, um, I'm sure that's right. In some sense, it's the union really that has gotten the power, not the teachers themselves. Uh, and we do seem to be making matters worse. Um, so in Chicago, one thing that led to its revitalization uh, was the this, this city invented the, the um, magnet school system. And because the mayor said, look, I need people to move back in from the suburbs. They got to have places to send their kids. We sort of invented a new institution to get around the old institution. Um, new York's, uh, there, there's been a system of meritocratic schools, uh, Stuyvesant High School. Although now we seem uh, set around the country to destroy those. As well. Yes, it's a very frightening thing. You know, I think the new institutional design is a good one. So I'm, I'm, I one idea that I've thrown out is sort of experimenting with vocational training that's wraparound. So instead of the often failed model of having a, a pure vocational training track, which produces sort of you know bad selection, bad failure, you offer things like after school and on summers, you offer vocational training in a you know experimental, competitive way. You randomize control trial it, and you can make compensation based on you know skills shown at graduation because you don't have to wait until age 30 to figure out if someone's learned how to do plumbing. You could actually like test it upon there. So, you know, I don't know what the right answer is, but certainly probably it involves new institutions, as you suggested, and almost assuredly it involves experimentation and evaluation. Okay. I'm delighted that at least we put this on the policy agenda. And I hope we agree that pouring more money down the current rat hole is not necessarily going to produce results. Certainly not necessarily going to produce, sounds right. I wanted to ask you your view about an an issue that's been on my mind, the affordable housing question. Uh, One of the, um, so there's a lot of movement that we need to build affordable housing. Uh, The city of San Jose, you'd be interested to know, um, managed to put together some shacks for homeless people. They are uh, basically sheds from Home Depot, but they managed to spend $350,000 per shed in order to do it. The thing that worries me most about affordable housing is the disincentives. Uh, As a good economist, I worry most about disincentives. Uh, I finally get my place in an affordable housing thing, but it's income limited. So if I get a job with a higher paycheck, I say no. If I get a job across town, I got to say no. Um, Have you... 
What's your view on this whole business as a, let's try to be nice. Is it helping the housing crisis or is it a, uh, a, a another well-intentioned policy with horrible disincentives like the last 50 ones we've done in housing policy? So it's also true that housing, the normal Section 8 housing vouchers also contain a an income tax effectively of 30%. Many, uh-huh. as you know, many of our um, uh, welfare policies each have their own separate tax, none of which seems terrible on their own, but they're actually additive. So if you put together the tax that's created by food stamps with the tax that's created by housing vouchers, you can get pretty close to 100% tax uh, on earnings. Um, I, I worry from the housing front, I think I worry more about the sort of affordable housing requirements that are essentially a tax on building, right? So you yes. essentially require affordable housing set-asides. Um, now, I, I will say one former U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, when he was doing this in New York City before then, um, made the case to me that the reason why he had these things in, in the code was that he, he needed it for political cover. So there was a, unless he could actually point to some affordable housing units that actually came with a new structure, he couldn't get the the structure through at all. Now, that's a political argument that I can't speak to. It's hard for me to judge as an outsider about that. But uh, I do know that you never made something more abundant by taxing it, uh, by taxing its new supply, and that fundamentally uh, an affordable housing requirement on new new construction is 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 a tax. I think it's also another thing which is really deeply unhealthy is that real affordability means that any Anyone can come to Silicon Valley or Boston or New York and rent an apartment at a reasonable price. Not that you got lucky enough to get lotteried into the three affordable housing units that were created. You know, my own, uh, you know, somewhat nimbiest uh, town had a, a, a newspaper article maybe a decade ago celebrating the creation of exactly one affordable housing unit, <laughs> as if that was somehow or other a great triumph for affordability that there was one unit. But in some sense, because you can point to quantity as opposed to price, it gives the politicians a uh, uh, chance to cheerlead for themselves. Whereas, you know, we really have to ask ourselves, are we supplying enough to keep the actual rental price, the free market rental price at a low enough rate? Well, and that's uh, from an inequality point of view. Uh, I think that's the, the problem is you freeze in place people who have been there for a long time, who for some reason have low income or, or and are happy to sit there. But what I want is the kid from Fresno who's got something going and and might want to move to the Bay Area and, and get an entry-level programming job. He can't do it because he can't wait seven years in line for his affordable housing project for a voucher in one particular section. So it, it freezes in place people who really should move out and does not allow people to move in. And, and the other, so politically, it's, how, how can we get people to understand? I, I hate it when Hoover, I'd say something like that. But if I create a marketplace-based housing, uh, a market-based apartment, and a rich person moves out of a, a shitty apartment and into that one, I now have uh, new housing. I have housing. It's just not new housing. And for some reason, politically, we seem to think everybody has to have a brand new house. <laughs> Yep, that's also true. That that you know, just like we think that lower income people can get by with with old cars, we think that you know, uh, middle income or low income people should be able to get by with old housing. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. One sort of political phrasing that I've tried, and who knows if it if it works, is I've become slightly more enamored of Manker Olson's arguments about insiders or outsiders than I was 30 years ago. So I remember reading this stuff in graduate school and thinking, yeah, 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 that's fine. It's also first of all, it's like non mathematical political science, so it all feels like junk anyway. And then on top of that, like America's got, you know, plenty of room for outsiders. The Sun Belt is changing every day. You know, didn't Margaret, I mean, his, his sort of, sort of 
ultimate example of a city that of a country that had gotten ruled and ruined by insiders was England in the 1970s, right? And it felt like, be it the labor unions or you know old Tory aristocrats, and you know it felt like Margaret Thatcher had done it, done a number on that. But you know, 30 years later, it feels to me like America has deeply empowered its insiders at, at the expense of its outsiders, and this shows up over and over again, whether or not it's about the sort of regulations that make it difficult to start a new business or a food truck in a particular area, or a federal government, a national government that has, you know, I think reasonably correctly been described as a pension system with an army, or, (laughs) um, you know, the way that we do this affordable housing, which means that, you know, if you're in place, if you're an insider, yeah, we're going to try and put in rent rules that make sure no one causes you difficulty, but we're not going to worry at all about your kid from Fresno. And after all, because he's an outsider, who cares about him? But that's the whole point of this of cities they're supposed to be places where outsiders can come and find opportunity and make a new world uh and that is also the point of america that we need to be a country that's for outsiders and i think that to me is is what what has gone terribly wrong and in some sense the the you know what's we we regulate the entrepreneurship of the poor so much more strictly than we regulate the entrepreneurship of the rich in in cities you know you can in silicon valley you can start your internet phenomenon maybe less so than you could have 30 years ago but you can do that and you exist in a regulatory free space. But if you want to start your, you know, grocery store that sells milk products in an immigrant neighborhood, you've got 15 permits to get through. And in some sense, that's endogenous because highly educated people chose not to be entrepreneurs in the real world because it was so highly educated and they chose to select into uh, an area that was that was deregulated. But it sort of contributed to something that's sort of, you know, really unhealthy, which is that it's it's just very hard for sort of poor kids to, to start something new in the urban spaces that are really ideal for them to do that in. And I think what you what you point to is an interesting political problem, uh, the political problem of local control and the extent of it. Um, so Palo Alto both itself, very stringent uh, zoning ordinances, uh, which despite all their bleeding heart uh, signs mean no, pe- no poor people and no minorities shall live here. Uh, but they have the right uh, since they have the the right to to say so much about what you can do with your property, they can do that. Now, one the, the kid from Fresno doesn't have any representation in the local election. Now, in some sense, it it used in some mythical past, it used to be well, you had property rights, <laughs> and that stopped the local uh, that stopped your local residents from from expropriating your ability to rent out an apartment cheap to the kid in in Fresno. Um, now we don't have property rights anymore, and that local control is so much more effective and the kid from Fresno can't vote in your local elections. Where this is a big issue in California, can the state override city restrictions uh, on density? Uh, does does the kid from Fresno essentially have some vote in whether Palo Alto mandates uh, very expensive houses? I think the only place that we can possibly hope for some change in terms of, of local land use regulations is in state legislatures. In some sense, for for me, I mean, you know, it's been an almost twenty years that I've been I've been worried about this. The fact that there is a Yimby movement at all is like yes. an amazing thing, right? I mean, twenty years ago there was nobody except for grumpy economists who thought that like there was too much land use regulation in this country. Now there's like a whole young kind of hip movement of people who are recognizing that they're the people who who pay the price when wealthy you know jurisdictions decide to zone out new new constructions yes. and and that's great and states are really the right 
level. You know, the idea that the federal government, I mean, HUD officials, my entire life, I've heard HUD officials say they want to weigh in against local land use regulation. They have neither the tools nor the capacity nor the energy to possibly do that. That's not the way our constitution is written. It has to be the state level. States have the power to do it. And in some sense, they should have at least some of the incentives to do it. So so zoning actually used to be illegal and it took a Supreme Court decision to to allow it. But I, I take your point. And in fact, I see it with some hope in California. California is a one party state, uh, which means that these things are are done within. So, you know, there's YIMBY Democrats versus NIMBY Democrats. And they're they're actually um, that that is uh, effective. Let me turn. Uh, we're, I, I don't want to go on to take too much of your time or our listeners time, although uh, this is great fun. I, I generally think that, uh, you know, you, you and me who live in the free market world have the answers to all the world's questions if they just listen to us. Uh, and, and a lot of the city regulations, we can see how destructive they are, especially to the people uh, they are trying to help. And, and you need safety. You need the ability to start small businesses. You need decent schools. Uh, and, and most of the stuff people have tried to do has just contributed to the problem. The one where I, I don't have a quick answer is the homeless question. It is taking over San Francisco. San Francisco spends, according to the New Yorker, $350,000 a year per homeless person, uh, yet they are uh, taking over uh, in some sense, really degrading the quality of life uh, right now. Um, do you have uh, three cents of wisdom for us on, on how to solve that problem? I really don't. I mean, we know this population is quite mobile. We know that your climate makes it particularly appealing uh, to to take care of them. I mean, we know the work that's gone on on this. I mean, sort of the classic papers on this were Dan O'Flaherty's paper showing that the regulation of the single room occupancy hotels in New York in the 1970s, which used to sort of provide mm-hmm. overnight accommodation on the cheap for this marginal population, their destruction uh, led to a burst up in, in homelessness. We know uh, Sandy Jenks's work, uh, again, this is 30 years ago, his classic book on the homeless emphasized more the deinstitutionalization of uh, that, you know, followed the the uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of kind of moment. And, and then, of course, there's uh, John Quigley's uh, work, which emphasized more sort of traditional housing market issues in in California. So it's probably true that something around supply of cheap housing would be helpful in this area, but clearly it's a larger cocktail uh, than that. As, as you know, there's this whole school of people who sort of have this sort of fixed housing first view versus other things. I don't have a strong view about this. Well, you're right that, that since mental illness and, and drug abuse is such a part of it, simply building housing, uh, you know, it gets instantly trashed. I like your point of view that, that one of our usual lessons is that regulation of the best is the enemy of the good. Uh, so single room housing doesn't look great, but it's it's better than nothing. So when you regulate that everybody has to live in a Hilton or nothing, uh, you get a lot of nothing. Um there is a, a, a view that this $300,000 of services is attracting them. Um, the climate is just as good in large parts of the West Coast where there are no homeless people at all. Because I mean, it's funny that they live in, in the city where there's the least room to camp rather than out in the countryside where there's a lot more room to camp. Well, uh, in some sense, the city has attracted it with services. 
and probably some of those services are also in the informal safety net as well. Free food from restaurants given out or other things like that. I mean, that's that's when you think about sort of the. I mean, uh, you know, I've been I've been obsessing yes. about prime age male jobless. And uh, the prime age males don't get a huge number of social services in this in this country, aside from disability payments. But you know, thirty five percent of them live on their parents' couches. So I mean, they are they do have a, an informal safety net that is. Um, uh, well, there's another. Uh, this has been prime age male. Now, not that we're not interested in women. It's just so clear that what is a prime age ma- prime age man doing not working, and how in the world do they support themselves? Is a uh, you know that that's a huge question and problem uh, perhaps for another day absolutely but uh, and it, it is and just just to follow up on your your point briefly I, again we care deeply about about women as well but typically when women are not in the formal labor market they're actually doing things that look socially right, useful reason. and they're usually not miserable and they're not just watching five hours of television a day and uh so it's, it's just a very different thing yeah, or, or hanging out on the street corner or whatever it is they do. Well, Ed, um, I want to go on for hours, um, but... Uh, <laughs> this is great fun. I promised our producer we, we would not go over 40 minutes, so I, I think I'll call it here, and perhaps uh, I can get you to come back again and we can uh, continue the conversation. Uh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely, John. Thank you. Thank you. This is great fun. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.